Good morning. All you social people. One way to get your attention is I'll say, in conclusion, a few of you, a few of you heard it. Good morning. Just want to, again, congratulate seniors, and uh, Jim sort of, we gave him just such a small window to honor the seniors. I just want to uh, give a shout out to what an awesome job the youth ministry does. Both Jim and Erica, uh, both incredibly passionate, and it's a privilege to see them working every single day, uh, pouring themselves and investing into the lives of the students. Uh, this isn't a paid advertisement. I'm not just a pastor here uh, at LCF, but I'm also a dad uh, of a youth ministry kid. Uh, seventh grade son, and it's just exciting to see him uh, plug into the youth ministry. And so, in a sense, this is an advertisement encouraging you, uh, if you're the parent of a student, love to have your kids get plugged in here in the youth ministry. If you know a student, uh, recommend that they, they plug in. Again, Erica and Jim do such a great job uh, investing in the lives and uh, wanting to see those kids go deeper uh, in their walk with Christ. All right. In conclusion, you, not really. Dismissed. Oh, we got a good 48 minutes. Not really. This morning, I'd like to tell you a story. It's a story not of my own invention. I didn't make this up. This isn't a fairy tale. It's a real story. But it is a story that is my own in the sense that I recognize myself inside the story. And as we walk through it together, perhaps you'll recognize yourself as well. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. We're going to look at a section here from uh, verse 24 of chapter 6, all the way through chapter 7, verse 17. We're not going to read specifically every single verse, verse by verse, but just follow along, and you can follow along uh, in your Bibles, on your phone, uh, in the Scripture, uh, just as we work our way through it and tell the story, and again, look for yourself within the story, because I see myself uh, in there quite a bit. What have you been doing? If this is your first time here uh, or you haven't been here in a while, I encourage you to jump in with both feet this morning. We've been looking and plowing through the book of Romans uh, from start to finish, and we'll finish uh, sometime the, the early part of next year. Uh, but don't let that dissuade you uh, because, again, every time we open the Word of God, it has something for us. Uh, something specific to say to you uh, inside of it. Inside of the big picture, the big look at the whole book of Romans, uh, we're also taking uh, a couple glimpses and sections during uh, this, this, bigger, this bigger look and looking at the characteristics of what does a disciple look like? What does a devoted disciple of Christ look like? And there's five specific things. A, dis a devoted disciple is gospel-centered, humbly unified. We've already looked at and studied a few weeks ago, mission-driven. A devoted disciple is disciple-making, reproducing, and then last week, Tim started us off on a look, and we'll look at today as well, and then the next two weeks on pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness. Last week, Tim gave us a great working definition of pursuing holiness, and it's on the, the screen before you. It's the act of beholding and becoming the image of Christ. 
So the question then is, if it is pursuing holiness, beholding and becoming the image of Christ, why in the world are we going backwards and jumping into 2 Kings in the Old Testament to look at pursuing, pursuing holiness? Why? That's the great question. Why should I pursue holiness? Because within my pursuit of holiness, there is a tension. I become more aware of my sinfulness. And when I see that image of Christ, and then as I see my own sinfulness, I say, yikes. Certainly, there is a tension. However, this is the truth I also discover, and that we'll see this morning, is that I also discover that God is greater than my chains. God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's forgiveness. This is the good news. It's all greater than my fears, my struggles, and my past. Because Jesus sets me free. So we jump into the story this morning. Verse 24, it starts off with these three words. It says, sometime later. Well, sometime later than what? What's exactly happening here? Uh, We look at this this verse sometime later, and we're, we're dropped into a scene where it's inside the city of Samaria. It's the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, again, give you a little more background very briefly, very quickly. Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. Uh, eventually, they broke into two tribes, the northern tribe, the southern tribe. The northern tribe was Israel. The southern tribe is Judah. And this is in the northern part, uh, the, the northern tribe uh, of the Israelites, the the tribe of Israel and within the city of Samaria. A familiar pattern has occurred and has taken place throughout the Old Testament with the Israelites and is they had this pattern and this bad habit of walking away from what God had laid out for them. Walking away from the, the law of the Lord and in their pursuit of holiness, quote unquote, uh, it was a pretty windy road. Uh, they wandered all over the place and let the influences of the, uh, the, the societies around them uh, influence them for the worse. So they started adopting idolatry and worshiping Baals and other idols of the region, letting the influences pull them away from God and what God had set out for them. As a result of that, you'll see through the, the Old Testament, Every time they walk away from God and let the culture influence who they are and pull them further and further away from God, as they wander, bad things happen. God would use judgment to, to bring them back to himself. And some of these, these uh, difficult things, we'll see one of them right here, is that they were at war with uh, the countries around them. So it says, sometime later, <clears throat> some, this is continuing, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, which is Syria, right off the, the northeast border of Israel, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. This was a city that's under siege. Siege is not a kind term, uh, not a fun place to be. Uh, the army, this giant army, had uh, cut off all the supplies in and out of Samaria And it was starving the city to death, basically choking it off to try and outlast the people inside and all of the stores of of food and supplies they might have inside. So eventually it will weaken the city to the point that they can just crush it and conquer it and wipe it off the face of the map. 
This is the scene, not a very uh, optimistic scene, not a very uh, good scene for those that are living inside of Samaria. And it gives us a description of just how severe the, uh, the, the siege was uh, and the famine was inside of the city. It says, inside the city there was a, a great famine and the head of a donkey sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter cab of seed pods for five shekels. Mmm, nothing says Mother's Day brunch like donkey head, right? Yeah, anybody have that on the menu today? Probably not, right? What a ridiculous thing to think about eating. And, and not only that, but it was uh, uh, in the Israelites, uh, with, with the, the laws of what, what were clean and unclean, this was an unclean part of the animal. There wasn't anything on it to eat anyway. I mean, a, a donkey ear. It sounds like a donut that you'll find outside from the, the, the youth group, but I promise the ones out there are much, much better. What are you going to do with that? The famine was so severe that they're selling donkey heads and a cab of seed, or some translations might even say dove's dung, which isn't actually dung, but it is basically like, you know what a suet cake is? Like bird seed and pressed together with basically yuck and junk and waste material. That's pretty much what it is. I mean, not really something that you're going to say, yum, can I have some more, please? Not at all. And these were being sold for exorbitant prices because people were so desperate. Uh, imagine spending $500 for the head of a donkey uh, in, in that day and age, or 50 bucks for just a quarter cup of like bird seed, basically. Uh, no thank you. But that's how desperate and severe uh, the, the famine had become inside the city. The king was out walking, verse 26, it says, the king of Israel, who was Jehoram, uh, who was a king whose heart had hardened and uh, wasn't as evil as some kings, but he still wasn't a good king and wasn't honoring the Lord with his whole heart. Best, best case scenario you could say is maybe he was halfway, uh, but he certainly wasn't honoring the Lord. And his heart had grown, grown hard, and we can see that in what happens next and what develops here. It says, as the king of Israel was passing by in a wall, a woman cried out to him, help me, my lord the king, crying out to the king for help within this situation. His response, you see his hard heart in the sarcasm that just comes out, saying, how can I help you? Where am I supposed to get help from? The wine press? Where am I supposed to get help? The threshing floor? There's nowhere to get help. His eyes were completely on the physical, weren't they? His eyes, here he is, the king of Israel, the king of, of God's people, doesn't say a thing about let's cry out to God for help. He says, what am I supposed to do about it? We don't have any bread. We don't have any water. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, but whatever, okay. Give me your complaint anyway. Let's hear it. And here we come to a verse in the Bible and a few verses in the Bible that at first blush, and I'll warn you, it is one of the most startling passages in Scripture. You may not find a more startling passage, especially on a day like today, as we think about what happens, but it points to the intensity of the siege, the intensity of the famine of what's, what's happening here. This woman, as she cries out for help, she then tells him the story of a broken deal that this mother had made with another mom. She said, a woman came to me, another mother came to me and said, sacrifice your son and today we will eat him and tomorrow we'll sacrifice my son and we'll eat him and that way hopefully we'll survive. Horrible. 
You can't even fathom this. What is going on here? Why is this even in the Bible? And our first reaction is to, I'm just going to skip right over this. I'm going to skip right over this verse because I don't know what to do with it. Well, it's there for a reason. And we use it and we look at it and we see because it talks about where sin can take us. Again, this siege, how did they get there? Because of unchecked sin that was going on in the life of Israel, in the nation of Israel, starting all the way at the king. And it eventually led to this siege. What happens when we sin and when sin goes unchecked in our life? We end up under siege. It's just as sure as it is here with the nation of Israel. And I want to point those verses out, not to shock you, not to try and grab your attention, not for some uh, sort of surprise value, but to also make the point that unchecked sin, this is absolutely true, unchecked sin will cost you more than I would ever expect, and unchecked sin will take you places I would never choose to go. When we let sin have its way in our heart, in our life, It's going to cost us more we can afford. It'll take you to a place that you would not choose to go, that you would not expect. That's a guarantee. Maybe sitting there and saying and rationalizing to yourself, well, Kurt, you know, okay, that's that's great, but no, not me. I have, you know, safeguards in place, and it's, you know, probably for somebody else, but that would never happen to me. I want you to check yourself this morning because there is not a single one of us in this room that is exempt, that is bulletproof, that when tempted in a right situation or with the right temptation, that we couldn't fall. Every single one of us on our own, left to our own devices, is vulnerable to sin. Adam and Eve had perfection in the garden. What more could they possibly want? And yet when tempted with sin, they succumbed. Another example, the disciples, when Christ was crucified, when he was arrested and hanging on the cross, they all scattered, his own disciples. So don't ever think that you are exempt, that I am a special case, that sin will not affect me. Because before you realize it, we will be under siege. The king doesn't respond, verses 30 and 31, he doesn't respond with mourning and crying out to God for help. It does say that he tore his clothes, and underneath his clothes you see that there's sackcloth, which is the appropriate, you know, the, the, the right attire for mourning and repentance. But what does he do? Does he cry out to God? No. He actually blames God for what has taken place. So again, we see the picture of this king who is sort of halfway in and maybe going through the motions, best case scenario, and would make it appear that I'm doing, I'm doing the right thing to you know, maybe make God happy, and I put my sackcloth on, but the condition of his heart was far from God, was far from repentance. He has sackcloth on, but yet, what does he say? He says, when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. He said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha the prophet was a prominent figure during this day, during this period, and uh, had uh, much interaction with the king. And since he was the prophet, God's messenger, surely, the king said, This is the cause of what is happening to us. He is the cause. He is bringing this down upon us. 
some of the background earlier uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6 is that there may have been a little bit of a rivalry developed in the heart of the king towards Elisha. Because Elisha, bringing the word of the Lord, was able to deliver Israel's uh, military victory uh, and significant victory. And the king, in his mind, looked bad in that sense. And so there was already this tension in the heart of the king towards Elisha. And so he's saying, it's his fault. He's bringing this on me to again make me look bad. And man, in response to this horrible scene of what's happening in my city, off with his head. That's my response to the horror of what's traveling and, or transpiring around me. Off with his head. So the king sends an assassin to end Elisha's life. How do I respond when the desperation of my own sin confronts me? What's my response to that? As the tension between pursuing holiness and my sin increases, what do I do then? Sometimes we respond just like the king and we blame and accuse. We say it's his fault, it's their fault, it's this person's fault. They did this to me and that's why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting. Sometimes we respond with denial. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see anything, right? The, the classic meme where there's like the dog sitting with the cup of coffee at the kitchen table and the place is burning down around him. Everything's fine. What are you talking about? Denial. And all of it has a heart and a root in the heart of pride inside of us. Saying, I've got everything under control and I can control everything anyway. And all of it, again, is a reaction or a reflection that, that we are under siege. With the assassin on his way, God intervenes, reveals the evil plan to Elisha, and speaks through Elisha, and we begin to see again, and this is an absolute truth this morning, that God is greater than what holds us captive. He reveals this evil plan through Elisha. Elijah knows it's coming. <clears throat> Just a thought that I had while thinking about that. Imagine being a prophet. And like you're just sitting there and like God reveals this evil plan like there's an assassin coming to get you. I mean, drinking coffee, like, oh no. Like, just pops into your head like, oh, uh, hey, someone's coming to kill you. Ah, all right. That's free. That wasn't in, wasn't in my notes. I thought about it. I thought you might be interested in it as well. All right. So as God reveals this plan to Elisha, Elijah responds and says this to those that are around him. And again, we see God's deliverance being un, uh, revealed and, and unpacked and unfolded uh, right here. And it's transitioning to uh, chapter 7. Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. This isn't Elisha trying to be poetic or sound like some, you know, herald saying, hear the word of the Lord. No, he is making a statement here that carries a lot of weight. What does hear the word of the Lord mean? Coming from a prophet, it means that God is about to speak. God is about to say something. And what happens when God says something? When we were living in Ohio, we had the privilege, our church connected to a Christian school, an elementary school. 
Uh, every single day in our halls, we had 400 kids, students from kindergarten through sixth grade, and uh, just a lot of great time interacting with them. And I was speaking in a chapel one time for their, their chapel service, and we were talking about the word of the Lord and, and how God speaks and is revealed and asking the kids what they thought it meant and, and you know, when God speaks, what happens. And this, this little boy, probably kindergarten, shot his hand up and said uh, with just this this attitude and communicating awe in his eyes about his biggest dinner plates, he says, when God speaks, it happens in real life. I thought, oh, man, that is profound. I love that statement because I I picture this kid, you know, picking his head up out of comic books of the, the fantastic stories of superheroes that are great stories but not really true. hate to break it to you. The Avengers aren't real. Okay, But when God speaks, it happens in real life. What an awesome statement that is. May I have that same attitude towards the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. It happens in real life. Elisha speaks God's message and says, in about 24 hours' time, there's going to be at the city gate sale of cheap food and plenty of it, meaning... The end of the siege is near. Elisha is proclaiming this, saying this is what's going to happen. There in verse 2, an officer of the king scoffs. He's a skeptic. And he says, come on, really? Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? Could this really happen? There's one in every crowd, isn't there? The chairman of the cold water committee the one who was always quick with the skeptical, scoffing remark to say, no way, it's not going to happen. Hear the word of the Lord, the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl. Yeah? I'm not a prophet, so I'm going to hide behind that. But that thought that you just had of like, no way, not going to happen. We won't even win a playoff game. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here with the, the, the officer of the king saying, not going to happen. There's no way this is possible. When God reveals that he is greater than what holds me captive, do I, will I, will I believe it? God is saying here he is so much greater, far greater than even these armies surrounding the cities. Will I believe that? Why would the officer say this? How did he come to the point of becoming so overwhelmed by the improbability of change? And again, here's where I start to recognize myself a lot. When do I become overwhelmed at the the improbability of change? Thinking, there's no way. And that's because I start believing lies. Lies of, of Satan that would say, no, you're not made in the image of God. No, you don't have to obey the word of the Lord. No, there is another way over and over and over again. Some of the lies that we believe, some of the obstacles or challenges to our holiness are this. My chains are too strong. I believe my chains are too strong. I am powerless to do anything about them. This sin, this struggle that I've been dealing with, it's got me. It's been something that I've had my whole entire life and been trying to navigate. And well, it's just too big for me. 
I can't do a thing about it. Another one is my chains are deserved. We feel guilty. We know we've sinned and we become overwhelmed with the sense of, oh, I've done wrong. Everybody knows it and I can't bear it and I'm guilty. I deserve these chains. And so here I sit, captive and under siege. We think my chains have consumed me. I have nothing to offer. My chains, I've been bound. I've been struggling with this for so long. I have nothing left. I have no more energy. I've been fighting this fight. I've been trying to pursue holiness. And this walk is long and tiring. And I'm worn out, burnt out. I'm spent. I have nothing left to offer. Another most dangerous lie is that eventually we come to the place of saying, you know what? My chains aren't that bad, actually. I'm adequate. I'm good enough. This is okay. I can learn to live with this this tension. A very dangerous place to be. Every single one of those lies that we believe are stuck and focused in the position of me. Thinking, I'm only thinking of me. And what are my capabilities and what is my ability to fight through this and to find salvation and to find freedom? And when my eyes are stuck only on my own abilities, my own heart and my own capabilities, yeah, I'm going to start believing that those to be true because left to my own devices, those are true. My chains are too strong for just me. My chains are deserved because I did it. My chains do consume me because I don't have the endurance on my own. The result, if we stay stuck on ourselves and the focus on our own capability or incapability, is that we choose death. We say, you know what, I'm gonna choose death. The officer at the gate, he said, how can this happen? There's no way because his eyes were squarely on himself and the, the, the seeming magnitude of, of what they were up against. And Elisha says to him, no, it's true. When God speaks, it happens in real life. But since you've chosen death, you will see it, but you won't partake in any of it. He chose death. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. And that word is, God is greater than my chains. And guaranteed, it happens in real life. So we look at this passage as we ponder and confront our own chains and as God reveals to me my own bondage, again, we have that thought of yikes. However, I'm here to tell you this morning and stand before you this morning and proclaim as loudly as I can that this is a day of good news. That this is a good thing to recognize the siege that you're under, recognize the, the, the significance, the, the the chains, the, the siege that we're, we're in, uh, as God reveals that to you, this is a good thing. Verses three and four of chapter seven, we're introduced to four lepers outside of the city gate. Imagine that scene, the, the, the hopelessness of what they're feeling. They're already struggling with leprosy, which would pretty much be a death sentence in the, the Old Testament. And they happen to be lepers outside the gates of a city that's under siege by this massive army. Hooray, you know, bad day gets worse. They say to themselves, they begin to think, all right, guys, here we are. This is a pretty tough spot that we're in. If we stay here, this city under siege, 
we're going to die, guaranteed. There's no food in the city. There's no one even here to, in their benevolence, throw us, you know, even crumbs because they don't have anything. We're going to die. It's guaranteed. Maybe, just maybe, if we walk out to the army's camp that's out there, even though they're big, bad, and scary, maybe they just might have mercy on us and let us live. They might kill us, but then it's no different than if we stay here. But maybe, just maybe, they'll have mercy on us, and we'll at least get some bread and water, a crumb or two, and we won't die. And so off they go. They march out uh, towards the camp. It's hard to say march when there's only four of you, right? How about they began walking? (laughs) That's about as aggressive as, as we can get. What would motivate these guys to go? We can come up with the whole rationale scenario. We can talk about that some more. But what motivated these guys to go? Simple answer, God led them. God began to work in their heart to go because, again, God had already said the end of the siege is near. It's within 24 hours. And God works through the hopelessness of the current situation, works through and works in a way that can't be ascribed to anything else to bring deliverance other than this is a work of God. What does it take to change? When we're stuck, when we're confronted by our chains and we think, "Ah, what do I do about this? What does it take to change? What it takes to change is the first step of faith. Just one beginning step of faith. The lepers were at such a point of desperation, they said, let's go, we've got nothing to lose, and they take a step, and they walk. I appreciate the discipline of traveling toward change Walking toward uncertainty. The lepers had no idea what would be at the end of the road when they finally got to the camp, but walk they did. They're still walking. Sometimes we don't see a way out of our siege. I'm here to tell you, walk nonetheless. Walk nonetheless. Why? Because God responds to honesty every single time. A pure heart, an honest heart, a heart that is seeking him, take one step and God responds. Verse 5 and 7 through 7, it says, As they walked, we see, as they walked, they actually and literally walked into freedom. It says, At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. What a picture. What a picture of of what's going on here. Four, not mercenaries, not Green Berets, not, you know, Delta Force, four lepers start walking toward the camp of the Arameans at dusk. At dusk, what is the sound that the Arameans hear in their camp? The sound that they think is vast armies coming to take them out, coming to wipe them out. They get freaked out and they take off. They're out of there. End of siege. It happens in real life. A wonderful thing that God is. Uh, that God does. 
This morning, I want to encourage you, challenge you, that if you would walk in the promises of God, the enemy has to flee. This is a guarantee. That if you walk in the promises of God, the enemy has to flee. I'm intimidated, I'm scared at the army of what's holding me captive. But if you walk in the promises of God, the enemy has to flee. Last week, Tim showed us and he, he looked at a couple examples, a, a whole great list of examples of what holiness is and what holiness is not. Holiness is not passive. Holiness is not sitting there and saying, oh man, army's too big, I'm just not going to move. Holiness is active, saying, I will take the first step of faith. Holiness is not neutral. Meaning holiness doesn't just leave you the same, like I am still in the exact same position. Holiness is vivifying. There's that $10 word, and I would have never used that word unless Tim taught it to me last week. (laughs) Vivifying, meaning it is life-giving and life-filling. What does that look like? Look what happens in the the life of the, uh, the lepers. We'll see that in a second. And again, the promises of God. Proverbs 18.10. This is what we have to to stand on and walk into. That says, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Every single one. It doesn't give exceptions or exemptions saying, except for big scary armies that are holding you captive. No. Everyone. Mark 3.11 says when Jesus in the the New Testament in Mark, as he was interacting with uh, the forces up against him, it says, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. What are we up against? It's not as scary as you think because of who we have on our side in Christ. Because in Christ, the enemy has to flee. Luke 10, 17, the same thing. The 72 returned with joy. The disciples had gone out, and when they come back, they marveled and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In James 4, 7, the instruction for us, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. These aren't maybe or might statements. These are the promises of God. It's interesting when we discover this and we come to to have it capture our heart, the, the freedom that's available to us, the humanity of our response. The lepers walked into freedom. In verse eight, it says, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Imagine being a leper, having nothing, and walking into this fully stocked camp, able to sustain an army and no one around. It's understandable that they would eat and drink themselves stupid, right? That they would grab some of this stuff and be like, oh my goodness, Finally, an Xbox. (laughs) Finally, I have everything that I would ever want. A a Keurig. This is great. 
And they began to hide some stuff and accumulate stuff, thinking, this is where it's at. Thank you for my freedom. Now I have all this stuff. Yay, me. Now my life has meaning and significance. Challenge this morning is when we walk into freedom and when we discover that we are free in Christ, do I celebrate that or do I coronate that? And by that I mean this it's great to celebrate the wondrous freedom that we have in Christ. It's great, it's fine to celebrate the fact that we live in a society, we live in America, there's nothing we can do about that, and we have Keurigs and Xboxes. It's okay to celebrate that and to enjoy those in their place. Or do I coronate that, meaning I make this king of my life? I have all this stuff, and by golly, I won't be satisfied until I have four Keurigs, one in the garage even, That's where I see my life having significance. When I get all this stuff and say, this is what's what's king of my life. Do I celebrate or coronate my freedom? Verse nine, then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news. No kidding. This is a day of good news. We're free. The city is free. Not just us, not just me and my three friends, but the entire city is free. Let us go at once and report this to the palace. We have to tell everyone that they are free as well. Good news of salvation is to be be shared. God is greater than my chains of sin. He said we're not doing right. The connection here to what we looked at several weeks ago in mission-driven. Mission-driven, what are we driven by? This day of good news, we have to tell it with other people. I have found freedom. There's freedom in Christ available to everyone. Why would I not want to share that with everyone around me? Our challenge this morning again is, does this relate? Absolutely it does. Again, I see myself in this story, in this account, and I hope that you see yourself somewhere in there as well and can be challenged by that and let God work in you to transform you and bring change. This certainly does relate. Again, we are all vulnerable to siege. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the, the devil is like a lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to take a bite out of you in the world we live in. Influences want to take a chunk out of us. John 10.10 tells us that the thief, Satan, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. This is what we're up against. An unchecked sin in my heart, if I've grown comfortable with sin or grown accustomed saying, well, it's not that bad, no big deal, whatever, I can get around it, will bring us to a place of siege where we are being held captive. And again, unchecked sin will cost you more than you could ever afford and take you places you never thought that you would go or choose to go. But I have even better news this morning that just as we see the good news from 2 Kings, the siege of the city of Samaria was lifted and God worked in a miraculous way. He has worked in a miraculous way to lift your siege as well. 2,000 years ago, just as the world thought it was on the edge of hopelessness, God Almighty spoke into the darkness to a group of shepherds and announced this. 
in Luke 2, 10 and 11. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. What is the good news? This is the good news, that the Messiah has been born. I'm going to invite the team to come back on up, and as we just prepare our hearts for worship, let's prepare our hearts and, and think about these, these thoughts and, and this statement. We started this morning with the most startling picture in 2 Kings. In the middle of Israel's unchecked sin, judgment fell upon them, and a son was sacrificed by those seeking to save themselves, looking to somehow prolong their life. A son was given in desperation, and no salvation was found. Just more horror and more torment and destruction. But the good news of the gospel is this, that in the middle of my unchecked sin, God's judgment fell upon Jesus. And God sacrificed his son for me so that I might be reconciled to him and have life without end. That's what's available to every single one of us. It is in this sacrifice that salvation is found. God is greater than whatever sin may hold me captive. So why should I pursue holiness? Why do we pursue holiness? Because God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, it's all greater than your fears, your struggles, and your past. It is Jesus who sets us free.